0: problem is we're in complete darkness and we can't see where we're going, let alone what exactly we're looking for. And so today we're going to be looking at one of the I am statements that we see in the gospel of John. If you've been with us, you know that we've been going through this study called I am. We've been going through these I am statements that Jesus makes throughout the gospel of John. And each one shows us a little bit different part of what Jesus has come to do and and who he is. Now, if this is your first time with us, I would highly encourage you when you go home today to go online, abt.church, and find Pastor Preston's sermon that started this whole series off. In that sermon, he gave us an overview of the significance of the two words, I am. It's not just a sense of being and who he is, but it was a claim of deity. It was the same name that God used back in the book of Exodus to reveal himself To mankind. So it's more than just a sense of being there, but it's a sense of deity that He is God. We're gonna continue our study today with that assumption, and we're gonna look at what Jesus means when He says, I am the light of the world. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open them with me to John chapter 8? John chapter 8 is where we're gonna start today, specifically in verse 12. As you're turning there, I'd like everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes. We are going to need God's help for this one. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for health. We thank you for protection. God, would you lead us right now into a deeper relationship with you? God, no doubt many of us are walking in darkness. Maybe some of us have been brought out of darkness. God, you make the claim to be the light of the world. Help us understand that. God, more importantly, as we'll see today, when you speak, people believe. They believe in the life which is which is you. So God, I pray right now that you would speak through me that people would hear your truth in your words and not my own. To Jesus I pray. Amen. Today we're going to cover three functions of the light. Now, when I say the light, I'm referring strictly to Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, we're going to take, we're going to look at three functions of the light. Now, there are quite possibly more, but today I just want to look at three of them. And and I'll actually give them to you right now if if you want to write them down. Three words are going to guide our discussion this morning. Are you ready? Say yes if you're ready. Say hold up if you're not. Okay, there's just a few of you. Okay. So... Three words that are gonna guide our discussion when we look at the three functions of the light are is this: guide, show, and remove. Guide, show, and remove. We're gonna look at where the light guides, we're gonna look at who the light shows, and we're gonna look at what the light removes. All right? So John chapter 8, you should have your Bibles open to there. The verses should be on the big screen. John chapter 8 verse 12 says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Are you ready for the first function? Here it is. The light guides us from walking blindly and from falling into sin. I want you to write that down. The light guides us from walking blindly and from falling into sin. Now, in order for me to kind of unpack that statement, we need to understand the setting and the context of this statement that Jesus makes. Because for this statement, the setting, well, the setting is everything. Context is key, all right? So, let's break down the scene of where Jesus is when he makes a statement that I am the light. Not a light, but the light. Jesus... We know from chapter 7 and chapter 8 is in and out of the temple in Jerusalem during what's known as the Feast of Tabernacles, all right? Also known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents. Pastor Wes, why is this important? I'll get to that in a second. So he's in and out during this feast. It's a week-long feast that the Jews had. And it was kind of a combination of our Thanksgiving and Independence Day. Right, They're thanking God and remembering what he's done, but also praising God and remembering when they were freed from Egypt. Do you guys remember that in Sunday school? How they were enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt, but then God led them to the wilderness, to the promised land. Do you guys remember that story? And so this feast is in remembrance of that whole journey. It's a week-long thing. And um, the Jews, they would actually construct these temporary structures on top of their houses, and they would live in those, all week long, in remembrance to the tents and the temporary houses that they had in the wilderness. So, all of it is in remembrance of what God has done. Well, there are a couple other rituals and ceremonies that take place. One of which I think is very important for our discussion today is what was known as the illumination of the temple. See, there were these candelabras or these chandeliers, these objects that, that held these, these candles. And these candles would be lit around the temple, inside the walls, around the temple. And it would light up the temple so brightly that people could celebrate and they could dance um, throughout the night celebrating what God had done in the Exodus. And, and historians write actually that it was so bright, this, this radiant light coming from the temple, it was so bright that anywhere in Jerusalem you could see the radiance of the light. And so we have the, the week that Jesus is there. We know that he's in the temple because in John chapter 8, verse 20, I think on the screen I put 21, so that was my mistake. But John chapter 8, verse 20, we read that Jesus is actually in the place of the temple known as the treasury, right? The treasury. Now this is the place where people would bring the temple tax. They would give other kinds of offerings, but it was also, this is interesting. It was also known as the court of women. This is the furthest place in the temple where women could go, but also the place where the temple would take up money. So naturally, this is gonna be the biggest crowd. So Jesus here, we know he's at the Feast of Tabernacles. He's in the temple. There's some candle things being lit around him. But there's one more detail. In the very beginning of John chapter eight, we read in verse two that early in the morning, Jesus again went to the temple. So get this picture. Jesus, he's standing in the temple early in the morning. Perhaps the sun is still rising, or if not low in the sky. Now these candles that were lit, perhaps are being extinguished for the day or they were going out themselves at the end of the festival. And Jesus here, he's gonna stand next to the very symbol, the very symbol that represented something in the Exodus. And he is going to make a claim about who he is. Now, before he makes that claim, I want to tell you what that symbol was. You see these chandeliers, these candelabras, these, these, these bright candles that, that, were writ, that were lit? Well, you know what they represented? They represented the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day that God used to lead the Israelites through the wilderness. Do you remember the story in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21 and 22? We read that, that God led his people through the wilderness with a pillar of fire, people. Isn't that crazy? That was at nighttime. During the day, it was a pillar of cloud that was lit up. And this represents God guiding the Israelites. It was his presence guiding the Israelites, where? To the promised land, to blessing. And now Jesus here, he stands next to to these candles. He stands next to these chandeliers, and he says, I am the light. Of the world. This is a representation of what God did for you in the wilderness. When you followed Him, you were protected and you were led into a life of promise and a life of blessing. But now that is done, I am the light of the world. I will guide you from walking blindly, I will guide you from walking into sin. The same way that God led the Israelites in the wilderness, those who follow Him experience the promised land experienced blessing, and the ones who didn't, no doubt they perished. So Jesus, he's making the statement more than just, listen, I'm a bright light in a dark place. Well, he is saying, if you follow me, I will guide you. I will protect you, and I will keep you from falling into sin. You know, it's interesting, the story right before this kind of interrupts Jesus' teaching, where he makes that statement. And this story that interrupts Jesus' teaching, it's actually about a woman who has, well, fallen into sin. See, we read about it in the first part of John chapter 8, and the gist of the story is that a scheme has been um, devised by some Pharisees and some scribes, and they're going to try their best to catch Jesus, as the young ones would call it, slipping. In a mistake, in in a contradiction, they're going to see if they can get him to say something or do something that might go against what he said, or perhaps what the law said. And so we we understand that these Pharisees, they they devise this scheme where they're gonna catch this woman in adultery, which we pause right there. Most of us understand it takes two to tango. So where's the guy in all this? Don't get me started. Anyways, (laughs) the woman has been brought before Jesus, stood there in the company of her accusers and of Jesus Christ, and the Pharisees accuse her and ask Jesus, now what? And they want a response from him because they want one of two things to happen. Understand this. They want one of two things to happen. One, they want Jesus to um, perhaps ignore her sin, right? Which would to be to break the old law. Or they want him to um, be the one who casts the first stone and condemn her, therefore showing that he doesn't have sympathy for her. And so it's kind of like a lose-lose situation. But Jesus, you know what he says? You know what Jesus says? Nothing. Jesus, we read, bends down, and he starts writing in the sand. And it's interesting because we don't really know what Jesus wrote. Isn't that fascinating? We don't know what Jesus wrote, so it's hard to say exactly what it is he is trying to communicate here, but there are, there are a few ideas, a few popular ideas of what Jesus is actually writing down in the sand, okay? One of them would be that he was writing down the reference to Old Testament law that had to do with bearing false witness, right? If these accusers were lying about what had happened, well, the punishment's gonna be pretty severe. The second, second popular one would probably be that well, he's writing down references to Old Testament law of, of who was the cast of first stone when you were accusing someone of sexual immorality. You see, it was a big deal to commit adultery. And it was such a big deal, and the punishment was so bad that you had to literally see someone in the act. Literally see someone. Not like suspicious, like they were in the same car together. Not they were just in the same room. Literally see them in the act of adultery because the punishment was death. It was to be stoned to death. And so because it was so severe, the person who had caught them in the act, well, they were to throw the first stone. So if you're lying and Jesus says, here, you throw the first stone, well, that's gonna be bad news. And so Jesus here, he, he gets up. Look at him, verse number seven. Verse number seven says that they, they continue to ask him, and he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and ran on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. See, Jesus, he doesn't say anything, but one by one, after he says, listen, okay, any of you without sin, you cast the first stone. And he gets back down and starts writing. The older ones leave first, and it's, it's hard to say why. Perhaps the older ones have lived a little bit longer. They got a little bit more sin in their life. Like, they've dealt with a lot more than some of the younger Pharisees, perhaps. But they start, they start leading. Can you imagine if Jesus were to write down all the sins that you committed? We don't even have to go back, like, days. We'll just start with today. Like, he would just start writing them down. <laughs> Disciples, we're going to need more paper for this one. Like, he would just keep on going. If Jesus is sitting there, and this is, this is probably, like, the, the third most popular, um, at least in my opinion, for what Jesus was writing in the sand— is that he's writing down the sins of the accusers. He's sitting there and he's writing down, you, okay, write down what you did, you. And so he's exposing the sin in their life, let alone their hypocrisy. And Jesus, we see the second function. I want you to write this down. The second function of the light is that the light shows us who we really are. The light shows us who we really are. You see, Jesus here, he's exposing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. The people who are supposed to be leading the rest of the people in God's law, in the direction of him, they are the ones who are the hypocrites here. He's exposing who they are. But we keep reading. Look at verse number 9. It says, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. It's just them two. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And what does she say? She says, no one, Lord. So Jesus replies, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And I want you to understand, Jesus isn't, isn't pushing her sin under the rug. He's not ignoring it. He's actually acknowledging it. And we kind of see two different responses here because he exposes the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And here he's exposing the immorality of this woman's life. But but he tells her, listen, sin no more. From now on, don't do this. From now on, live a different life. From now on, this does not have to be you. See, the light shows us who we really are. Speaking of religious leaders, you guys remember a guy named Nicodemus? You guys remember Nicodemus? Some of you guys? Yeah, we read about him in the Gospel of John, actually way back in chapter 3. If, if you just want to flip a few pages, look over in John chapter 3 with me real quick. John chapter 3 has this conversation with Nicodemus. And it's so funny because Nicodemus comes to Jesus when? At night. It's, it's dark out. He's going to come to the light. Anyways, he, it's dark out. Because he doesn't want people to see that he's associating with Jesus, but he's got questions. I mean, we all got questions. He's asking Jesus, what does it mean to be born again? What's this eternal life thing? Like, what what, what does all this mean? And John chapter 3, verse number 18, Jesus has this response. He says, whoever believes in him, referring to God, whoever believes in God is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Why don't they come to the light? Lest his works should be exposed. See, the light exposes who we really are and I think this is this is a hard spot for many because if Jesus exposed who you were to the rest of the world well who knows what would happen who knows what would happen if your failures were put on display who knows what would happen if your mistakes were put on display who knows what would happen if the light would expose you for who you really are Because when we read verses like that, we understand that as human beings, we are condemned. We are in darkness. We are, we we hate the light because our works are evil. That that is who we are. And the light, the light exposes who we really are. What would happen? What would happen if you were brought into the light, well, the light would expose exactly who you are. So the light guides us from walking blindly and falling into sin. The light shows us, shows us who we really are. But I want you guys to understand this, and this is our third function, probably the most important one, that the light removes the darkness of sin from our lives if we follow him. The light removes the darkness of sin from our lives if we follow him. You can flip over another page, John chapter one. John chapter one, verse four and five says that in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Can I get an amen? amen? Nice. You see, when I was younger, someone told me, as a joke, fortunately I believed it for a little bit, but someone told me that when you turn on a light switch, light bulbs suck up all the darkness, <laughs> right? Is that, is that not how it works? Okay, no. Oh, no. And after a while of sucking up too much darkness, what happens? Well, that's when the light pops. It makes sense. Fill up a water balloon with too much. It psh, goes everywhere. Why isn't a light bulb any, any different? Now, I understand that's not how light bulbs work, but... Unfortunately, I think many of us equate that wrong thinking to Jesus. You see, if Jesus were to try to take up all the darkness in my life, he couldn't handle it. God, you can't handle my addiction. God, you can't handle my struggle. God, you can't handle my hurt. You can't handle my harm. You can't handle what I'm going through. God, you can't handle it. Now, every single one of us in here understands that that's not how a light bulb works. When you hit the switch, what happens? The light fills the room and the darkness runs and hides. I mean, think about it. The shadows in this room is the darkness hiding from the light. The darkness has not overcome it. The light has overcome the darkness. You see, when we turn on a switch, darkness leaves because darkness is only the absence of light. When Christ is within us, the darkness flees. When we turn a light switch, the light overcomes the dark the same way that Jesus Christ overcame the grave. And yet we think Jesus can't handle it. You see, we can't live real life. We can't experience creation in its intended fullness with the veil of sin over our lives. You guys understand that? I mean, I, I, I think about marriages. Marriages are, are good sometimes. Sometimes not so much. We have a marriage series coming up. I encourage all of you to come. But marriages is just simply a relationship between uh, a man and a woman. There's good times. There's bad times. There's, there's, there's difficulty. There's, there's fun. There's, there, there's all sorts of things. But without Jesus, without the gospel, well, that's all it is. It's just a relationship. See, it's not until Christ enters into your life that you understand that you are no longer simply in a relationship, but you are a model of what Christ has done for us. See, you can't love unconditionally because you haven't experienced unconditional love. See, with Christ in our marriages, we are able to understand that Christ gave himself completely for us as the church, so I'm gonna give myself completely for my wife. It's no longer what I want, but it is what she wants. I would give my life for her. I think about work. Work is simply a 9-to-5, a, a right? Without Christ, it's simply a 9-to-5, it's a means to an end. Well, I got bills to pay, I got to have something to pay the bills. I want a bigger car, I want, I want more vacation, I want a better office, I want a bigger house, I want all these things, and, and that's why I work. You see, it's not until Christ fills you, as the light fills you, that you see that work is no longer mundane, but work is your mission. See, Christ has placed you in your mission field so that you can be a light to the world. People, scriptures say, will believe by hearing the word, but how will they hear it if you will not speak it? See, work is simply mundane, but with Christ, we understand that it's our, our mission. What about our children? Now, I have a six-month-old, so I can preach this without any hypocrisy, (laughs) at least not yet. What about our children? Children are great. I work with your students. Most of them are great, actually. I'm just kidding. They're all wonderful. Um, they need to join us every Sunday morning and Wednesday night at 6:15 to 8 o'clock. We'd love to have you back in the NPR. There's my plug. All right. What about our children? Children are simply—they're simply what. Without Christ, well, they—they they can be a joy. You can have a love for children because you just love to experience the, the youthfulness and 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 just young life and and, and teaching and nurturing. Some of you have kids to create a a workforce. I mean, we're being honest. Some of y'all have too many kids. It's ridiculous. So what's the point of of children? Well, Scripture says that that, you're not just just to play with your children, but you are to disciple your children. Scripture tells us that your children should be fashioned together like arrows in a warrior's Quiver. And what, what, what's the use of an arrow? An, an arrow is something that is put together intentionally, made for a purpose, something that is to be pulled back and released to fly straight and true with deadly force for the cause of Christ. The problem is, is I think some of us aren't creating arrows with our children. I think some of us are creating nerf bullets. <laughs> and that's the problem without Christ. If we resume our... Finding Nemo. Those of you who have seen the the movie know that that scene where they're in the darkness, well, it doesn't really stop there. They keep on swimming in the darkness. They can't see anything. And Dory, she's got memory problems, like I said. So she forgets that Marlon's down there with her, right? And so she hears a voice and she goes, is that my conscience? Marlon, of course, is always kind of teasing her, and it's like, yes, Dory, this is your conscience. <laughs> How are you feeling? Nah, can't complain. <laughs> but then Marlon asks her in his conscience voice, Dory, do you see anything? What does Dory say? Dory says, I see, I see a light. And the two, then they swim over. They see a, a, a little, very small, faint light, and they swim over to it. And those of you who have seen it, you know what happens next. And they swim up to it and they're entranced by it. They got to have it. It's not enough to fill the whole ocean. It's just a little bit right in front of them. And it looks so enticing. And then that's when it happens. The anglerfish who has the light on the end of his antenna lights up. Don't know what an anglerfish is. Google it later. They're hideous. (laughs) They have these giant teeth, but they use this antenna with a light bulb to lure in other fish so they can eat them, so they can consume them. You see, I think many of us, we chase after very faint lights in this world. We chase after fame, we chase after icons, celebrities, people who might be good people, but that's all they are, they're just people. There is no good people. There's just, there's people. And when we put our faith, when we put our, our, our reliability, when we put our hearts and souls and energy into following people, we just get consumed because we want what they have. And we end up just keep swimming, just keep swimming. You see, Jesus is the light, the only light. He is the one who gives us life, the ability to experience the fullness of creation, our marriages, our work, our children, everything around us. Without Christ, you and I, we are continuing just to run in circles, putting our head down, squandering in darkness. We just keep swimming. My hope and prayer is that you would hear these words of Christ as he is calling you. He has revealed to you the truth of who he is. He is the life. He's not just the light, but he is the life of men. I mean, John 3, 16, right? Probably the most popular verse in the Bible. How's it go? Let's say it together. For God so loved the that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him should not but have Give yourself a round of applause. Good job, guys. Good job. But we leave out, we leave out verse 17. I mean, we, this is part of the whole conversation. Verse 17 says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God doesn't have to come to condemn us, we are already condemned because we have not believed in the name of the Son of God. He does not have to tell us or put us into darkness because we are already in darkness. Christ came to save the world, not to condemn it. We are already condemned because you and I, we have hated the light and love the darkness. Will you come to the light? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The question for us today is, is he your light? Is he your light? Has he saved you? Or do you continue to choose to walk in darkness and ignore the light that Christ clearly is?